to um to Lord listen to you and not just listen but to obey his heart to be a man of the word and deed and so Lord I pray this morning as he has uh, sought your face and um mind your word Lord I pray that uh, you would speak through him this morning to your people to your family that we would be strengthened we would be built up in the word that we would go out knowing who you're calling us to be and Lord in, in, pour your spirit into Alan this morning as he gives out will you just pour a double portion Lord, we know what it's like. You can go home exhausted when you're involved in things like this, but I pray he would go home in, uh, envisioned and alive, full of the giver of life as he uh, provides and gives life to us this morning. So bless him now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, how's everyone doing? Has everyone got a lollipop who wants a lollipop? You might need it to ease you through. No? Everyone, everyone okay for lollipops? So we're still in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and I think we're in the third Beatitude in the series. Um, shall we? Uh, if you want to grab a Bible or a device or anything else to look at God's Word, we're going to start in Matthew 5. And this morning we're on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So let's start by uh, reading from verse 1 in Matthew 5 again. So, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know about you, the Sermon on the Mount is it's really well known. It's one of those uh, bits in the Bible and bits in the Gospel that I'm very, very familiar with. But for years and years in my mind, I pictured it that Jesus went up on the mountain, the crowds were there, and he was, thus says the Lord, you've heard, turn the other cheek, blah, 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 blah. And do you know what? It only just recently dawned on me. This was a really intimate teaching moment just with the 12 disciples. Because at the start it said, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and the disciples came to him. So it's completely wrong. And, and this was, this, my, my, uh, uh, how I was seeing it before was wrong. I thought it was this grand sort of sermon. And this was where Jesus was starting to teach the, the 12 disciples about how God's kingdom worked. Um, it's, I suspect it's already been said, and it's something that we probably know, that one of the things that really, really jumps out for me about this teaching is that it's so countercultural. So not just how the world sees things, but if we're honest, how, how we see things ourselves inside. 
It's completely upside down, topsy-turvy on its head, God's kingdom. And you know what? It was, back then, it was dangerously countercultural. It was dangerously offensive to the culture then, to the, the, to, to, uh, the, um, the people. And you know what? It remains dangerously countercultural today. It is the exact opposite of how we think and how we would instinctively react. And the Beatitudes, they're all characteristics, qualities, values that we see Jesus live absolutely perfectly out in his life, don't we? And they're the same characteristics, qualities and values that the 12 disciples that he was teaching, uh, which uh, he was teaching them to show and that we should be living and known by today. But like I've said, they're the exact opposite of the world and how we think, aren't we? The world marks success and achievement, doesn't it? We don't hear phrases like, oh, it's really good to be poor. It's good that you're sad. It's great when you mourn. It's the exact opposite. What we normally hear and what we, if, if we're honest, I don't know if you're like me deep down inside, what we think is, it's good to have things, it's good to be rich, let's get some more stuff. And I don't know about you, in the past when I was younger, I've also probably considered these beatitudes as a bit of list of achievements that I need to tick off. Oh, if I want to follow Jesus, then oh, right, I've got to be poor in spirit. How, how do I make myself poor in spirit? How do I make myself mourn? How do I make myself meek? As if there's something we somehow have to achieve to be worthy enough for God to even uh, use us. But we know, don't we, we're not saved by anything we've done. We're saved 100% by what Jesus Christ has already marvellously done. And it's finished. And also, we're not condemned by God or Jesus. So we've got to be really careful that we don't, in self-pity, condemn ourselves. In Romans 8, 1, 12, my favourite passage in the Bible, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In John 3, 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So we're not condemned, and we are only made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and what he has already done and finished. We can't add anything to it. We can't take anything away. It's already been accomplished. So, unfortunately, because we like ticking stuff off, the Beatitudes don't appear to be a tick list of things we have to go, tick, done, great, I've done that bit of the, the, the discipleship training. But the really amazing, beautiful thing is that when we live by these values, the closer we get to God, the more time we spend in his presence, these values, they shine, they glow through us, and it's God's glory, and it magnifies God's glory as as we live like that. So, who are the meek? And what does Jesus mean by they will inherit the earth? And let me just start by saying, meek does not mean weak. Who, when I was younger, I used to think meek meant weak. 
Um, I'm guessing most of the world would say meek equals weakness. But it can't be true, can it? Jesus was meek, but he was certainly not weak. Do you remember if that good old Graham Kendrick song, Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity? Jesus was meek, but he was also all-powerful, supreme. That's the opposite of weak, isn't it? And there are many, many verses in the Bible that describe Jesus as meek. In Matthew 11:29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:1, I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. And that really famous one that we, we hear just before Christmas in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in... Studying for this, the word for meek that Jesus uses here in blessed are the meek is actually more related to how wild horses are broken in, how they go from kicking and bucking to be uh, broken, to be submitted and controlled. Does anyone else here like kicking and screaming? If we're honest, we all like a bit of kicking and screaming, don't we? Especially when there's something we don't want to do, we don't agree with something. And if, honestly, if you like me, sometimes we can be, it's, it's all about me, it's what I want, it's so unfair. But meekness and being blessed in meekness is actually doing what Jesus has already taught us. In Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we also see, don't we, that little hint there in those verses that, that Jesus has just spoken there, a, a nice little neat answer, if you like, to what inheriting the earth means. It's not about achieving something, accumulating something, maybe it's more to do with eternity than now. After we're dead, after judgment, if we've put our faith in and followed Jesus, we quite literally will inherit along with him everything, including a new heaven and a new earth. And although it hasn't physically happened yet, at least I'm not sure anyone's dead here this morning yet. You're all looking still pretty alive. Everyone's still looking like they're breathing. No one's on their last legs. Do you know what? We've already been freely given this inheritance and are already in some sort of mystery reigning and ruling with Christ. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained. We've already got it. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Not for us. It is never about us. It is always for him. It's always about him. Always for the glory of the Father. 
I just wonder sometimes, do we really get it? Do we really, really get it? We should be dead. We should be going to that other place. We deserve to be far, far away from God and not even come into his presence. But not only through what he has already done through Jesus Christ, so we haven't had to do anything, we've been made right and able, and not only can we just be in his presence, he also invites us to take part in the life and glory of his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Completely upside down, completely opposite to how the world operates, even how our expectations operate, because we just don't deserve it. So, meekness, as Jesus teaches us here, is for us to deny ourselves and submit every single bit of our lives, the good and the bad, to God's authority and will. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus doing it all the time, don't we? In the good times and the bad times. We remember Jesus in the garden the night before. Not my will, but yours. And Jesus perfectly shows us that to be meek is power under control. Jesus had all the power. He was supreme, but he did not retaliate. And in the gospel accounts, Jesus only speaks out strongly when uh, God's honor or truth were attacked. We see this in the temple when the tables were overturned. We see when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to catch him out with their questioning. But when people were uh, hurtful towards himself, when they spoke untruthful things about him, even when they brutally tortured and executed him, he was silent and did not retaliate. And do you know what? Moses also displayed this same spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. It says in Numbers uh, chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. And in in Exodus 17, chapter 17, verse 3, we read, But the people thirsted for their water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. Moses didn't criticize the people. He didn't say, But look what I've just, you've just gone through the sea and the Pharaoh and you were all going to be dead. He prayed for them. I don't know about you, but I find the meekness here displayed by Moses and especially by Jesus really, really challenging. How many times when I think that I've been wronged, have I just wanted to get payback? Have I wanted to right the situation? Have I wanted to get even? And more soberly, how many times have I actually gone through with it as well? Jesus is silent, apart from when God's name or honour or truth are attacked. When people hurt him through words, treatment, physically when he's tortured and executed, he's silent. I pray that God would give all of us that same grace and compassion that Jesus looked on others with when they're hurting us, when they're attacking us. 
Well, God, I just pray that you would help us to deny ourselves and remain silent, to be meek. And we saw in Exodus, didn't we, when the people complained to Moses, rather than tell them off and rant and rave, he prayed, he prayed for them. I pray that that would always be first in our mind as well. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray first, speak second, to be meek. And the meekness that Jesus is talking about here in blessed, blessed are the meek, always submits to God. That means all my hopes, all my dreams, all my plans, everything I do is un- underneath and second to God's mission. But that's challenging, isn't it? How do we submit basically everything we have to him, to his mission? I love how Charles uh, Spurgeon describes meekness. He says, meekness is humble, it's gentle, it's patient, it's forgiving, and it's contented. And it delivers us from the opposite of all those things. Meekness delivers us from pride, from harshness, from anger, from vengeance, and from ambition. So, million-dollar question time. What does being meek and being completely submitted to God look like? You know, what does it look like for us now? And I think there's three things that I found anyway. Firstly, I think we need to submit to God's word, to the Bible, to what he's already said. In James chapter 1, verse 21, James says in his letter, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And there's that really famous parable of Jesus about uh, from Matthew 7 24 everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rain came tumbling down anyway and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it As much as I would want it to be, God's word already written in his Bible is not guidelines. It's not like the pirate code in Pirates of the Caribbean. Sometimes we can choose to follow it or not. So, and this is the thing I'm sort of challenged with at the moment myself. When I'm reading the Bible, when we read, not the iPad, the Bible, this is the Bible. This is God's word. Do we receive it with meekness in how James tells us to? Or do we think, that doesn't apply to me, so I'm not going to do it? That can be a real struggle for us, can't it? It can be a real struggle with pride. And that other really challenging statement is that, are we just talkers and hearers of God's word, or do we get on and do it? James tells us if we're not doers of God's word, we're deceived. Jesus tells us if we don't do his words, we're foolish, and great was the fall of the house. How are are we doing God's word? 
How are we doing what Jesus has already taught us and told us to do? What do we actually do in our ordinary, everyday lives, practically, to follow what Jesus has already commanded us? And secondly, as we already touched on, we should be submitted to God's will. I don't know about you, it's really easy to be submitted to God's will when everything's going well, isn't it? It's a, it's a doddle. Praise God, oh, brilliant, fantastic. What happens when things aren't so great? When God puts us in, puts us in places that we would never choose to be in. How are we submitted to God's will in those times? There will be and there are times in all of our lives when God will put us in places we would not choose or want to be. It could be difficult circumstances at work. We could have trouble in our families. We might struggle with mental health. We might get really sick. Someone we love might get really sick. Someone we love might die. It's hard, isn't it? Because in those times, our flesh can rise up. How can God let me go through with this? How could God have put me in this situation? Does God really love me? Is he, is he really there? What does it look like to be meek when we're in that place we would never choose or want to be? I just want to... Im- us to imagine for a while. I don't know whether you want to close your eyes if that helps imagining. Let's go into a garden. It's late at night, it's dark. There's a few men asleep in the garden. But a little way apart from the sleeping men, there's another man. But he's lying over a rock face down on the ground. And when we get a bit closer to him, He's shaking, he's, he's sobbing, he's, he's just, the sweat's pouring out of him. He looks like he's in absolute agony. And then he says, My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is perfect submission from Jesus, isn't it? This is perfect meekness. Jesus submitting himself to the will of God the Father at a cost we just cannot imagine. But, guys, this is also the meekness that Jesus calls each of us to. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's think back to that untamed horse, that wild stallion. Are we submitted to God's hand on our life? If if we're honest with ourselves, or are are we like a wild stallion, kicking and screaming and bucking against the call of Jesus Christ, at war with ourselves even? It's really challenging, isn't it? But these are the characteristics and values that Jesus calls us into if we follow him, if we want to become his disciples. And lastly, in this Ironically, might be the hardest, actually. (laughs) Meekness is submitting to God's people. 
In Ephesians 5:15, Paul describes what it looks like when disciples of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, uh, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything in God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to be singing to each other a lot, aren't we, in psalms and hymns and spiritual, uh, spiritual songs, and we'll always be giving thanks. But there's, there's one other thing at the end of that passage, which I've, I've always overlooked, uh, that is evidence that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, because Paul finishes off in Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh dear. How can we do what Paul describes in Ephesians if we follow Jesus on our own? Can we be on our own and sing songs and it's just not possible we can have a go at singing songs to ourselves. i don't know if anyone here likes singing to themselves in the shower or but to do what paul describes here as disciples filled with the holy spirit we have to be part of a group of christians what we would call church today and this is where our meekness grows through our commitment of relationship to other christians <laughs> but this could probably pose the hardest challenge, can't it? If we walk away every, every time someone upsets us, we can't learn meekness, can we? And you know what? This has also uncovered a really surprising truth for me. Meekness, or being meek, can only ever happen when we're hurt or upset in that place we don't want to be and submit ourselves to God right in the middle of it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should blindly follow anyone and what they say. It is okay to walk away in some, some uh, circumstances. Being submitted to God's will and God's word are unconditional. There's no negotiation. You cannot change. But if someone claims to be a Christian but tells us what God says is not true or refuses to accept what God has already done for them, it is okay to walk away. <laughs> That is something completely different to what I'm talking about here in being submitted to each other. But that's hard, isn't it? Because we're all so different and we all like things to be slightly different. So, <laughs> what does being submitted to each other, even though we all annoy each other, and meekness look like in practice? In Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul says... Do nothing from selfish ambition, oh dear, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the very point of death, even death on a cross. I must put everybody else before me. 
and it's not just in words. We've got to be, I'm afraid, we've got to be doers of the word. It's got to be in action, in doing. I should listen to what other people say. What they think, I should always respect their opinions and thoughts, even if I think I'm right. Imagine church if we all practice that, preferring each other. Meekness is preferring others. It's not about wanting to get my own way. It's the exact opposite. And you know what? It's considering being together is far more important than what we actually do. Meekness shown like this, if we live like this, also disarms, disarms the enemy and it transforms circumstances and situations. But I should be really honest here, it does not take the situation and circumstance away. Ultimately, the meekness that Jesus has already shown us led to his brutal crucifixion and death. But his meekness in not walking away, in being silent or fighting back or dominating and subduing, he could have subdued everyone with a thought, has transformed our situation the situation of every single human being who's ever lived and the whole of creation. Jesus lost his life so we could gain ours. He calls us to do exactly the same thing. And today we've already remembered the sacrifice, haven't we, made by the soldiers in the war. And whatever we think about morals of war, the British and allied soldiers who defended us lost their lives, not for their own benefit, so that other people could gain their lives and be free. That's meekness in action. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was meek, and he has inherited everything. Amazingly, if we're also meek in the same way that he's already shown us, we get to be part of this same inheritance. It's mind-boggling. It's just so opposite to how we think and how the world thinks. So in our missional households and our gospel communities, in our groups of Christians, are we, are we ready to get on now with the mission that he's calling us to? Are we ready to be doers of the word and not just hearers? What is the mission that he calls us to? Matthew 20, we, we, we've been in Matthew a lot today, I feel. But anyway, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission. How on earth? do we do the mission? Something else that's just sort of struck me this morning um, and over the last couple of weeks is I wonder if sometimes we think too big on the mission. I don't think it's wrong to have big dreams, to have big vision. But I wonder if sometimes we miss the little thing, the little ordinary thing that we, where God has got us every single day and we overlook that because we're waiting for some big wow move of God. And I was doing some maths in my head the other day, 
And I was also not beating myself up because we shouldn't be living in, wallowing in self-pity, but I was like thinking, who, who am I discipling? Not, not in the church, outside of the church, who, who am I? Go and make disciples. Teach them everything I've commanded you. And I'm, why are we so obsessed with how many, oh, that person's might have done 10, 100, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, there's a, lot of diff- there's a lot of difference between discipleship and just calling people into God's kingdom, which only God does anyway. And then I thought, why are we thinking so big? Wisdom's from God. We're, we're foolish. Not in, not, I'm not putting us down as saying foolish, but in God's wisdom, he put Christ in us, and it's Christ who's our redemption, our salvation, our holiness. If so statistically, this is where the maths comes in, there's two billion people who call themselves Christian out of eight billion people on the planet today. If I just discipled and put all my effort into one other person in my whole lifetime, that's four billion. If those two billion out of the four billion then disciple one billion, that's six billion. We're at world domination in like a lifetime. Yet, yet we, so it's, it's only, a, it's only a, th- a thought I've had. Is it, and I think this is the case, and this is something I'm working through now, I think it's because, for me personally, am I always looking at stuff through my own eyes, if you like, my worldly eyes, which measure, measures success by strength, accumulation of stuff, what you have, and so I'm like, no, it can't be just one. Per- there can't be just one person. Unfortunately, that leads me onto a, another really sobering, challenging thing that I'm at at the moment. Is can I name even the one person? Anyway, it's a different day. Thought I'd just drop that in there. Now, I, I honestly, I really think we should. Um, I don't think it's wrong to dream big. It's not wrong to have really grand vision and get excited. But we should be really careful. We're not missing the small things that happen every day in our lives. And when Jesus went away and said he was going to do greater things, it wasn't, we can't top what Jesus has done. He is the best. But he's now multiplied himself out today two billion times And in every one of those two billion people, if they submit to him and his will and be doers of the word, that same power that was in only one man 2,000 years ago is now in a quarter of the world's population. We just got to get on. We just got to get on with it, haven't we? And realize it. So, how do we do it? We've already read it, but I'm going to tag a little bit of the seriousness of the bit in Matthew that comes after the denying bit. Then Jesus, so we're in Matthew 16, verse 24. This is in all three Gospels, and it's almost identically word for word the same in all three, apart from John. Mark's a little bit more harsh at the end, but anyway. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, it's unconditional. There's no negotiation. To come after him, you have to do this. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's what world measures success by. It's what we probably measure success by, if we're honest, but forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
We can't do anything. Only Jesus is the way. For the Son of Man is going to come again with his angels in the glory of the Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done.